As we open God's word now, I invite you to uh, turn first to 1 Samuel chapter 2 for our Old Testament reading. It's on page 267 in your pew Bibles. We'll read verses 1 through 11. This is the song of Hannah after God has given her a son in Samuel. For Samuel 2 verse 1 says that Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. The pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah. The boy was ministering to the Lord. The presence of Eli, the priest. You can turn to Luke chapter 1. Page 1017 in your pew Bibles where we'll read together verses 39 through 56, the words of Elizabeth and then Mary. Luke is known for his emphasis on women in this gospel. It has been said as the the beautiful gate of, of the temple opened into the court of women. So as we open the gate of Luke's gospel, we enter into the court of women for more than any other gospel Uh, Luke records their loving and varied ministries, beginning here with those of Elizabeth and Mary, who extol their coming Savior. It says, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices 
in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he was mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. That his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things of the rich. He has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Beloved, I've uh, titled this sermon, The Songs of the Season, as uh, Mary and Elizabeth, both in their excitement at what God is doing through them, the coming incarnation of our Lord, cannot help but sing. And Mary's song is perhaps the more well-known of the two, but, but Elizabeth likewise sings. When it says that she exclaimed with a loud cry, filled with the Holy Spirit, this is no dry, unmoved theological statement, but, but I think the many commentators who, who have suggested that this likewise is, is something of a song are right. Notice that the parallelism in, in verse 42 in those first two lines where it says, blessed are you among women. And then the next line, blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then down at the bottom, another blessing in verse 45, creating what, what we call it a, an inclusio, sort of enveloping this whole statement. It says many of the marks of a, of a psalm or a poem, a song. A commentator Henry Burton says, Elizabeth is the first singer of the new dispensation, and though her song is more of a bud of poetry than the ripe blossomed flower, it pours out a fragrance sweeter than spikenard on the feet of the coming one. Both Mary and Elizabeth worship the coming Christ. And along with, with Zechariah and, and Simeon, even the angels in Luke chapter 2, they, they give us what have been called the last of the Hebrew Psalms and the first of the Christian hymns. And teach us the proper response to the coming of Christ into the world is praise. Luther said the good news of Christ's great deliverance tunes the heart to sing. So let us tune our hearts this morning to sing these songs with them that we might join in their praise as we consider first Elizabeth's song and then the song of Mary. The context is verse 39, that Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to visit Elizabeth. This is in response to what we heard last week where the angel told her in verse 36 that your relative Elizabeth has also conceived in her old age. And so Mary here is going to visit her in response to God's word. Um, Calvin said partly to increase and strengthen her faith and partly to celebrate the grace of God which she and Elizabeth had received. She wants to go and, and confer with Elizabeth and, and celebrate what God is doing in and through them. 
you put yourself in Mary's shoes, you've got to imagine she might be a little bit hesitant to want to share this news with others, be it Joseph or her parents. And so she goes to the one person she knows will understand, the person to whom Gabriel has directed her, for whom God has done a similar miracle. Because when God does something great in our lives, or when we we come to understand something new about God's word and his his work in this world that that brings us great joy, we, we want to share it with others. And so Mary, it says, goes with great haste to see Elizabeth. That phrase, with great haste, implies sincere and and strong affection. She goes there with great determination. It says that she stays there three months. And before we look at what each of them say in their meeting, one of the lessons that we learn from this is of the blessing of communing with other believers. It strengthens our faith. It, It multiplies Our joy, Ryle said, happiness communicated doubles itself. While grief grows greater by concealing, joy grows greater by expression, by sharing with one another the joy of what God has done. We multiply our joy. That's why C.S. Lewis said that praise not merely expresses, but completes our enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. That's, that's why it's frustrating to find a new singer or, or food or, or author and not be able to share it with someone else or to take in some great view and not have anyone to view it with. Lewis says, we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes our enjoyment. Sharing it with others and and giving it verbal expression from the depths of our heart multiplies our joy. That's what this older and younger saint do. They share in each other's joy and, and multiply that joy by celebrating together what God has done. This meeting is a little picture of what the church is to do and be in her worship. We multiply each other's joy by praising the Lord together. Even as in this case, across generational boundaries, the older and the younger worshiping together, encouraging one another, communing together. And as Mary and Elizabeth do this, Elizabeth goes first, yet even before she sings, John is in the womb dancing. Verse 41 tells us, when, when Mary came in to greet them, John leapt for joy in her womb. Verse 41 simply tells us that he leapt, but in verse 44, Elizabeth interprets that and says that it was a joy-filled leap. Or a few weeks ago in Luke 1.15, it said that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit from conception. Here we see the work of the Holy Spirit in him, pointing already to Christ. John's ministry, as he will describe it in in John chapter 3, will be to point to the bridegroom. He he says, he must increase, I must decrease. And here he's pointing already to the Messiah. John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, summing up the, the witness of them. And here, as he jumps for joy at the presence of the incarnate Messiah, he shows us how the, the whole Old Testament, as it were, jumps for joy at the coming of the one for whom they longed. And Christopher Ash says, all the longings of the Old Testament feed this joyful jump 
of John the Baptist. And his mother, Elizabeth, rightly interprets this jump as a witness to the Messiah. So when he leaps for joy, filled with the Spirit, she exclaims with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why would it be granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She is overjoyed that that Christ in the womb should deign her with his presence. And as she says this, I don't think that we're to understand that that Mary has has somehow sent a telegram ahead to convey to Elizabeth the news that she has received, but but Elizabeth makes this confession as a prophet. Remember, Luke is the one who will tell us in volume 2, the book of Acts, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And here this daughter of God declares the child in Mary's womb is the long-awaited Messiah. Even affirming his divinity as that term Lord that she uses to describe him is elsewhere used for God, as in verse 38 or verse 46. J.C. Ryle said this is a confession worthy to be placed alongside Peter's when he says in Matthew 16, thou art the Christ. It is the first Christian confession. And the hymn-like nature of it makes it the first Christian liturgical text. She is leading us in worshiping the Christ. Of the way Abraham Kuyper puts it in his little book on the women of the New Testament, he says, Elizabeth saw and believed that there beneath that woman's clothes, her Savior was revealed, rather was, was concealed. The Messiah no more was to come. Elizabeth knew that he already was. He existed in Mary's womb. Hence she prayed and and confessed him. At once the the flower of faith completely blossomed forth in Elizabeth that God revealed in the flesh was fulfilling the hopes of the fathers. And so she responds with a song of joy that God has fulfilled what he had spoken by drawing near to his people in grace to fill them with joy. Those are really the, the three notes that you hear In Elizabeth's song, you you hear that note of fulfillment as she says in verse 45, blessed is the one who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what God had spoken. She celebrates also God's grace in, in drawing near to his people as she says, why would it be granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. She recognizes herself as as unworthy, a recipient of God's grace, who she worships in verse 43 by calling him Lord. And then a very hymnic nature of this exclamation and of the joy that she speaks of in verse 44, Elizabeth also teaches us that the proper response to the coming of, of God into the world in fulfillment of his covenant promises to be born of a woman and take on human flesh to save us, the appropriate response to that, the only appropriate response to that is joy. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Elizabeth teaches us that that what is is taking place is a joy-inducing event, and the only proper response is praise. Is that not the clear takeaway from the fact that these two opening chapters of Luke's gospel are filled with not one, not two, but, but five of these songs? that the proper response to the coming of Christ into the world is to praise him with song. 
as we sang at the beginning of our service, to sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and holy arm have wrought salvation. The proper response to God's redemptive acts in Christ is to praise him with song. Which is why every week as we gather together, we do that. Why, as, as the church has commemorated the birth of Christ throughout, throughout the history of the church, she has celebrated the birth of Christ in a way where, where central to our celebration of it is the songs that we sing. The songs of salvation, or the songs of, of the season, because they are the songs of salvation, that sing of what Christ has done, that fill our hearts with joy in response to what God has done. Again, to quote Lewis, these, these songs not merely express our enjoyment, but complete it. Elizabeth here in these verses sets the tone for how God's people are to respond to the incarnation. We do so with joy, and we let that joy complete and multiply itself in corporate praise as, as the two of them teach us in their meeting together where Elizabeth begins with a prelude and then Mary picks up where she left off, magnifying the Lord through the depths of her soul in verses 46 and following. It's that song that I want to look at now, track two in Luke's Christmas playlist, what's been called throughout the history of the church, the Magnificat, um, based on the opening word in, in Latin for magnify. Uh, Mary's aim in this song is to hallow or, or magnify the Lord. And not that we can make God any bigger than he already is, but there is a sense in which he can be magnified or enlarged in her own hearts and minds. And that's what Mary is, is seeking to do as she reflects on what God has done. She is, is holding up the magnifying glass, as it were, on God's works of redemption by meditative reflection and song. That's what we do in public, private, and family worship. We magnify the Lord in our hearts and minds and the hearts and minds of our hearers so that we might more and more come to understand his greatness. That as we reflect on and, and meditate on and respond to what he's done, we, we might have our idea of just how great God is enlarged. And Mary seeks to enlarge that conception here by, by focusing on a couple of things in this song. I'm not gonna say Everything that there is to say about it is I actually want to return to Mary's song this afternoon as we think about prayer. But just three basic things that I want you to see now from Mary's song. First, that God is a God who exalts the humble. Second, that God is a God who judges the proud. And third, that God is a God who keeps his word. First, notice this theme in Mary's song of God exalting the humble. You see it in verse 48, where she says, for he has looked upon the humble estate, or the, the lowly estate of his servant. You see it again just a few verses later in verse 52, where, where she says he has exalted those of humble estate. In verse 53, has filled the hungry with good things. These are themes that Luke is going to return to over and over throughout his gospel. He's using Mary's song here to introduce that, as we saw a few weeks ago in our, our introductory sermon, Christ comes to preach good news to the poor. 
That's how he'll define his ministry and that that, uh, paradigmatic sermon he preaches at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. He is the one who comes to proclaim the year of Jubilee, to, to look upon the poor and the outcast, Gentiles, women, children, and lift them up. As I mentioned last week, that's, that's why God chooses this poor adolescent girl from nowhere, Nazareth, as the bearer of the Messiah, who can't even afford the, the sacrificial lamb, the purification offering in Luke 2 who comes from a town of which it said, can anything good come from Nazareth? God chooses this lowly peasant girl to exalt to the high honor of bearing the Messiah to teach us something about God's heart for the lowly. Perhaps also to teach us something about what God is going to do for his Messiah. He is going to exalt the one who humbles himself by taking on flesh to die and raising him up to his right hand. It's interesting, this this whole gospel really follows this pattern from Mary's song of God exalting the humble one as it begins in, in, in a manger and ends with Christ's enthronement at his ascension in Luke 24. In Christ, we see this truth preeminently that God is a God who exalts the humble. And Mary sings of it. And yet not only of how he exalts the humble, but she also goes on to sing of how he judges the proud. This too is a major theme in, in, in Mary's song. She speaks of, of his might in verse 49. The strength that he uses in verse 51 to to scatter the proud and to to bring down the mighty, to to topple the mighty from their thrones in verse 52. And he also speaks of how in filling the hungry, he sends the rich away empty. It's interesting, almost every one of the good things that he does for the lowly in this song is paired with judgment on the proud and the wicked. Christ is is coming into the world to bring about a great reversal where the humble will be exalted and the proud will be brought low. Those who oppress the weak and torment his people, Mary is telling us it will not fare well for them. In fact, much of the language that, that she uses echoes the language of the Exodus, implying that he will do for them, rather to them, the wicked, as he did to Pharaoh. Again, we see, we see this second exodus theme. But this time, the emphasis is on salvation through judgment. Daryl Bach says, all the injustice of the ruling classes against his people will be reversed as the humble are lifted up by God. The ruler's oppression and lack of compassion will be dealt with by him. Mary trusts God's just vindication in the coming messianic reign. And like the prophets, she sees Christ coming into the world as as the beginning of this reversal that, that, as we know, will be finally complete when he comes again. Announcing by the Spirit of God, the one she bears in her womb will bring justice. In fact, she is so sure of it that she speaks of it in what we might call the the prophetic past tense. She says he has shown strength. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. 
Like many of the prophets of old, she, she affirms that his judgment is sure, indeed so sure, that she can speak of it as already complete. Because she knows that God will keep his word. Verses 54 and 55, that he will remember his mercy promised to his people. He will remember his promise to Abraham, which, which includes, in Genesis 12, cursing those who curse his people. As the humble one, she bears in her womb the exalted as king to bring justice. It will be the fulfillment of God's promise of old. His promise of a king who, who would come not just from the, from the line of Abram or, or of Judah, but, but, but the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of David, to fulfill every one of God's promises. Not just the promise that she mentions in verse 54. As we'll see this afternoon, this, this song has, has well over a dozen allusions to different passages throughout the Old Testament. It is a tapestry of Scripture, just like, like Zechariah's will be later in Luke 1. And what she's showing us in Zechariah 2 and the way that she puts together this piecemeal prayer is that those passages that she alludes to in the Psalms and the prophets and the law are all coming to fulfillment in her son, who is the yes and amen of all God's promises, the fulfillment of every, every, every part of the scriptures. The one at the end of this gospel will take those two despondent disciples on the road to Emmaus and explain to them how everything in all the law of Moses and the prophets of the Psalms pointed to him. That's what Mary and next week Zechariah are communicating to us in the way that they weave these these songs of joy and praise to God for sending his son into the world by, by weaving together all of these Old Testament prophecies in their songs are showing us. We don't have time to look at all of them, but if I could direct you to just, just one of these, the Old Testament passage that this song most resembles is the song of Hannah that we read uh, just before the sermon, where both Mary and Hannah rejoice in the Lord. Both of them uh, call him holy. Both of them speak of how he exalts the lowly and abases the proud, how he fills the hungry with good things and cares for his people. In fact, if you turn back there, um, just, just listen to how this song in Luke 1 echoes that song. Uh, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. So Hannah, in verse 1, my heart exalts in the Lord. Uh, Mary says her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. So Hannah rejoices in God's salvation. Hannah calls him holy in verse 2, saying there is none holy like the Lord. So Mary says holy is his name. Hannah speaks in verse 4 of God overcoming the strength of the mighty. So Mary says he has shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud. The same proud who Hannah addresses in verse 3. Um, Hannah says that the the, the full have now hired themselves out for bread, while those who who were hungry have ceased to hunger. And and so Mary says, he has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He exalts the lowly in verse 7. Mary echoes that in verse 52. He has exalted those of humble estate. It's as if this song is a cover of that song. Even the way that Luke transitions in Luke 156 to, to Mary going to her home afterwards, just as Elkanah and Hannah did in 1 Samuel 2.11. Similarities are more than coincidental. 
Luke and Mary understand God to be doing for her what he did for Hannah. And if you look at the end of Hannah's song, she, like Mary, also understood that what God was doing for her individually also had implications for all of of God's people. As she says in verse 10, that through what God was doing for her, the adversaries of the Lord would be broken to pieces and God would judge the ends of the earth, giving strength to his king and exalting the horn of his anointed. Uh, that, That word anointed is the word Messiah. And this is the first time that it's used in a direct prophecy about God's king who interestingly is spoken of in the same kind of way that Psalm 2 speaks of him, shattering the, 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 uh, the, the kings of the earth who, who seek to um, speak against Lord, the Lord's king. The same kind of imagery is used, verse 9. It says that the wicked will be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. Hannah is speaking here of God's anointed messianic king. Hannah, in in magnifying the Lord for what he's done in giving her a son in in Samuel, she understands that through him, God is going to exalt his king to rule justly. And of course, he'll do that as Samuel will be the the prophet and, and priestly figure who will anoint David to be God's king. But of course, David is not the ultimate fulfillment of this song that Hannah sings, but rather David's son. In other words, the one of whom Mary sings in her cover of Hannah's song is the fulfillment of Hannah's song. The just Messiah king she longed for who would break the adversaries of the Lord to pieces and exalt the lowly who looked to God for salvation. Mary's song, as Benjamin Glad puts it, is the ultimate realization of Hannah's. Jesus, the true heir of David, will finally secure the throne and vanquish all evil. All of God's promises are coming to fulfillment in him. And Mary praises God for it, for keeping his word, for judging the wicked, and for lifting up the lowly. As we look at these two songs, Elizabeth sings to us about who Jesus is in calling him Israel's Lord incarnate God himself. And Mary sings to us about what he'll do. He will rule as king on David's throne, vanquishing God's enemies and exalting those of humble heart. He will judge the wicked and show grace to the humble. This is perhaps not your typical Christmas carol. Mary is signaling for us this is what Christmas is about, this great reversal where this child in Mary's womb will become a king who rules with justice. And so Mary sings because the only appropriate response to the one who comes to rule with truth and grace, the one who makes his blessings flow as far as the curse is found is to praise him. Again, to quote those words from Luther, the good news of Christ's great deliverance tunes the heart to sing. That's the main import of these two songs before us. Christ has come. God has remembered his promises to be merciful. The one who has come is God himself who rules with justice. And so we respond in worship with hearts tuned to sing. As we do that, 
want to just draw your attention to a couple of, of brief applications about the nature of our praise as we let these mothers instruct us. And first of all, notice how their praise is Christ-centered. This is true not only with, with Elizabeth and, and Mary, but even with, with Hannah. The content of their song is what God has done and is doing in Christ. Bonhoeffer said, the heart sings because it overflows with Christ. So it is with them. There is a Christ-centeredness to their worship. There is an objectivity that is is not, first of all, centered on them, but on him. It's not, first of all, centered on what they are going to do or, or on how they feel, but it's centered on what Christ has done. He is the content of their song, his person and work, as he should be ours. And second, their praise is not only Christ-centered, but notice how their praise is also word-saturated. Mary's song echoes not just Hannah's, but as I said, there's as many as 11 different books of the Bible that are alluded to in her song, especially the Psalms. And so she teaches us that that in praising the Lord, we we must sing his word back to him. To sing a new song doesn't mean that that we have to reinvent the wheel, but, but it means to sing of the new thing that God has done. And as Mary teaches us, and as Luke will through his quotations of the Psalms throughout Luke and Acts, it's possible to sing of the new thing that God has done through the old songs he's given us, which prophesy of these very events. That is to say, there is no conflict between our song being Christ-centered and our song being word-saturated, even with Old Testament words from the Psalms, because those Psalms speak of him, which Mary gets as does Paul when he tells us to sing the psalms and calls them the word of Christ. Our song should be Christ-centered in in response to what he's done. It should be word-saturated, using the very words that he's given us. Then using those words that speak of Christ, Mary and Elizabeth also teach us to praise him specifically for his justice and for his mercy. To praise him for using his strength to scatter the proud, and to cast the mighty from their thrones. Mary teaches us here that it's not wrong to pray to God to do this and to praise him for it. But in the church and in the world, we, we want arrogant, greedy, violent rulers brought to ruin who crush the weak and, and persecute God's people. And Mary teaches us to long for this, to rejoice in it. This great reversal that God is going to bring about, where in doing that, he is showing mercy to his people. As one theologian has has pointed out, one of the, the central themes in all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is God's glory in salvation through judgment. In this, we rejoice. That the king who has come is the one who Hannah told us would break the adversaries of the Lord in pieces and judge the ends of the earth in righteousness. And he's coming again. What a comfort that is for God's persecuted saints and for, for all of us who are members of the same body. Mary teaches us to sing of these realities that God has kept every one of his promises all the way back to the Garden of Eden where he first promised to crush the serpent and his seed underneath his feet and he will do that through this king who has come and is coming again. 
And we praise him for that this Christmas, for his king who comes to rule with truth and grace, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for sending your son, who Elizabeth rightly calls her Lord, who Hannah longed for as her king, and who Mary extols as her savior. We thank you that he has come once in fulfillment of your promises, and we thank you that he is coming again to exalt the humble and to bring down those who oppress your people. Father, we think of, of the many throughout the world who Mary represents, downtrodden, weary, poor. We pray for our persecuted brothers and, and sisters throughout the world that even this Christmas in, in contemplating carols like this one, you would strengthen their faith. And help them and us to respond to you in praise for all that you have done and for all that you will do. And like Mary, to gather with your people and let our praise to you be Christ-centered, word-saturated, and sing of your justice and mercy through Christ our King, the humble and lowly one who you have exalted to the highest place. But how we long for that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord.